apologize after that announcement. All I can think about is pulled pork. So I might be a little distracted as I'm talking this morning. But with that, we're going to be in, uh, who doesn't love pulled pork, right? All right. Uh, today we'll be in Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. It's on page 874 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to follow along. So first I want to ask the question, and I'll throw this out, and I'd like to hear some responses. How do we as a society define a good person? What makes a good person a good person? What do they do? What's that? Less bad? What else? What makes a good person a good person? Kindness? Don't kill anybody. All right. <laughs> so you might have the idea of like provide for the poor, give to charity, tip well, advocate, advocate for those in need, love others. Those are kind of ideas of a good person. Now thinking to yourself, how do you define a good person? Now, with that being said, who here would say they're a good person? By show of hands. I'm the only one? Okay. Jake in the back. <laughs> I generally, to be honest, probably think of myself as a good person. I think that's just natural. Who doesn't think of themselves as a good person? It's kind of a natural assumption that we have. But as we interact with Scripture, and that's probably what you guys are all getting to and are jumping ahead, but as we interact with Scripture, specifically this passage, we come to some heavy truths about a good person. And these truths become more apparent as we provide the proper framework. So as we jump into these heavy truths, there's two things I want you to think about. One, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. So a lot of the discussion that we're going to have this morning is going to push back against a lot of their thoughts and ideas. Then the other piece, if I can say this, Jesus is a great evangelist. As we read through this, we will see how Jesus walks this rich young ruler through the process of identifying who God is, what God's standard is, and where he stands in relation to God, which is really what we as evangelists should do. So I think we could take some very good notes as we read through this scripture this morning. So let's start in, verse 16. Then just, just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? What a great question. There's an assumption there. Did you catch it? The religious perspective. Assumption is good actions equal eternal life, equal heaven, equal entering the kingdom of God. That's his perspective. If you interact with people on a day-to-day -day basis... This is the question that they have. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What good must I do? I probably will go to heaven because I've done more good than bad. And if we're truthful with ourselves, we'd probably realize that this creeps into our own thinking. Maybe not as blatant, but it definitely comes into our thought process. If I only do X, God will love me more. That is not true. And as we see here, Jesus, the evangelist, starts with who God is. He identifies where the man is coming from. He obviously has a religious perspective. Some believe that he was probably a Pharisee because of his perspective. But you notice that Jesus doesn't just jump to the answer and say, this is exactly what you need to do and you will inherit eternal life. He doesn't shut down the question, say, that's a dumb question. Don't you know that's wrong? Instead, he does what Jesus does best. He follows it up with another question. Look at verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, there is only one who is good. Jesus provides the correct answer, which is that only God is good. So you might find in your Bible, there's a little footnote, no one is good but one, God. Only God is good. This is deep theology, and we're going to camp out here for just a second. God isn't good because of the actions that he does. This is where we get it wrong. God is not good because of the actions that he does. He is good because of who he is. Now, if you think through arguments, you probably see that as a circular argument. But unfortunately, when you're dealing with God, sometimes the only argument is circular because it is God is good. It's because of who he is and not a result of what he does that makes him good. We think, like I was trying to get to in the beginning, the idea of a good person is that they do good actions. That's not it. It's about what's inside, not about what comes out. That's what God is after. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that there's evil, there's sin in our own hearts. Yes, God is renewing our hearts. Those that are believers, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart and changing you. It's a progression. It's over time. But there's still evil inside of your heart. There's evil desires that then come out. And if you don't think that humans have evil in their heart, this is a hard truth, then you either live under a rock or you're not honest with yourself. And I've had discussions with people about this as I've had only a handful of conversations. I'm not great at this, I'll be honest with you. But when you have conversations with a non-believer, this is what they get at. 
I am a good person. Jesus would say, yes, you probably do good works, but what's inside your heart is not good. The only thing that is good is God. So God has to be in your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit in order for there to be good inside. Yes, there might be actions externally, but we're talking about the heart. And that's what Jesus is after here. He wants your heart. So this is heavy. But fortunately, this isn't where the story ends. Continuing in verse 17, it says, If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Jesus lays out the standard. Keep commandments. Keep the commandments. Jesus has defined the standard. And for you that don't know, there's over 600 commandments, laws in the Old Testament. But Jesus is getting at, keep the commandments. Let's see how he does with this. So the gentleman follows it up, follows it up with, which ones, he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lists four of the Ten Commandments and a law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, a law coming out of Leviticus 19. And if you notice the list, they're all external. They're external actions. We go through it. Do not murder. Check. I've done that. Do not commit adultery. Check. Do not steal. Check. Do not bear false witness. Check. Honor father and mother. Eh. Anybody that has kids, anybody that's been a kid, (laughs) that one might be uh, questionable. And love your neighbor as yourself. At least for me, if ignoring your neighbor is loving them, then I'm probably pretty good at that. But you notice that these are all external pieces. But that's not what Jesus is after. Remember, he's after the heart. So go with me just a couple chapters back. We'll look at uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You notice here, starting in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. So it's not just don't murder It's don't get angry. That's the standard. Looking at verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the list that this rich young ruler understands and that Jesus provides 
do not murder, do not commit adultery. These are all externals. And quite possible that you could fulfill all of these commands, at least the ones listed here. And there's a reason why Jesus only lists four of the ten, and we'll get to that in just a second. But if we're looking at chapter 5, we see that Jesus is talking about what's inside. So a correct actions come from a corrected heart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that then creates a desire for God. The rich young ruler only sees a checklist. Looking at verse 20, he says, I've kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? The religious perspective, I've done all that. What possibly could I be missing? I like to think he's kind of thinking the idea of, I'm good, right? I'm good. I'm just checking in, making sure I'm good, right? I've done all these. And this is where many people stand. They see it and say, yes, I've done all those. I'm good, right? But then Jesus goes on to show where this man stands before God. He shows him what he's actually missing. And it's not an action. It's a heart stance. Looking at verse 21. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus, the evangelist, if you will, gets to the heart of the man. He initially started laying out who is God. God is good. Standing before God. Do these commandments. It's where I stand individually. Sell your possessions and come follow me. Now keep in mind that Jesus is not providing some secret action to enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying that everyone should go and sell their possessions. Keep in mind, we've said this before, but just to reiterate, the Bible is written for you, but not to you, okay? Keep that in mind as we're looking at this. He's talking to an individual in time, in a real place. And he's telling this man, because of where he is uh, in his heart, he's telling him to do a specific thing. Jesus is dealing with the man's heart. And this process can look different for everyone. Can you have possessions and still be a Christian? Yes. Can you not have possessions and still be a Christian? Yes. So it's not about the possessions. That's not the point of the verse. The point is Jesus wants the man's heart. He knew, Jesus knew what the man was holding on to. He was holding on to his possessions. So he said, remove that and come follow me. He was testing them. Where does his allegiance lie? You notice that Jesus didn't use the first commandment. 
which is you shall have no other gods before me. He didn't start there. But that's essentially what he's getting to, is the first commandment. He wants undivided allegiance. And the man couldn't provide that. But why? Jesus answers, starting in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is possible, but with God, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The religious perspective of the day is demonstrated by the disciples. If this rich man cannot be saved, then who can be? They see the rich, riches and the wealth as a blessing from God. So if you're rich and wealthy, then you're in tune with God. And this is shocking to him because that's not the case. And Jesus is getting at that, stating that it's hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom. It's hard for them, not only because as you become more and more wealthy, you become less and less dependent on things. It's not only that. It's also dealing with what God has to do. The salvation is not a man piece. It's a God piece. You can see here that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, you might have heard the idea that the camel, in order to pass through the eye of the needle or a gate, had to bend down and crawl through. So there's a humility component to that and passing through the needle. Unfortunately, through the studies that I went through and looked at, there's not a lot of archaeology uh, basis for that. So with that... The other piece is, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. He is stating a literal camel and a literal needle because of verse 26. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So he's stating that a literal camel cannot pass through the eye of a needle. So there's nothing that we can do that warrants us entering into eternal life, entering the kingdom, having eternal life. Entering the kingdom of heaven is impossible for man. It's only through the work of God. Turn over with me to Titus 3. And starting in verse 4. 
But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of generation and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have access to eternal life. So it's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do in, in us. He has to act first. Because without that, we don't have anything. He has simply asked us to believe in him. So this is where the rubber meets the road. The idea that there is this action by God, Jesus coming as man, dying on the cross, rising again, paying the penalty for our sins, the darkness, the evil that's inside of us, providing us the opportunity for salvation through that work and the opportunity of renewing our hearts through his work, the Holy Spirit, to make us good. Not because of what we do through our actions, but because of what he has done on the cross. This has eternal significance. As we can see, starting in verse 27, then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to him, truly I will tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you, have, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So we see in the book of Revelation, we've spent some time in there recently, God will make all things new. So as Jesus is talking about that, in the renewal of all things, when Christ returns, Jesus will rule. And as we see here, the 12 disciples will be ruling with him in this specific context. will be ruling with Jesus over the nation of Israel, judging them primarily due to their general rejection of Jesus Messiah. Another point, talking about the leaving of the house, brother, sister, father, mother, 
Jesus is pointing to a much bigger family construct. He's already talked about this before. Go ahead and flip over with me to chapter 12 of Matthew. And we can see, starting in verse 46, while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him, this being Jesus. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So brothers and sisters in Christ, that is our bigger calling. Our family with Christ as the head has significant impact. It's larger than anything else that we have here. goes beyond all of the constructs that we create. And you see here as he finishes, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Kind of look at that initially. At first glance, my initial thought, first will be last and the last will be first. So there's going to be a reordering of the structure. So you could take heart as a Christian knowing that the people that have it all right now may not have it later. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that the first will be last and the last will be first and there will be a meeting in the middle. Everyone will be equal. And that becomes more evident as we move into the next passage for next week. But keep in mind, I love this verse, especially considering everything that's going on. Flip over to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Looking at verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus as believers. And the best part about all of this, this starts now. This isn't something future tense. Our family is here. We are called to be a family. We are a Revelation Church family. So as believers, we are adopted into Jesus' family. And we get to celebrate that together. And that's one of the critical pieces of Sunday morning is gathering together as a family. Just like any other family, getting together should be a joyous time. 
a celebratory time, a wonderful time. So as we transition to communion, if you're not a believer, I'd ask you to think in the same vein as this rich young ruler. What hinders you from putting your complete allegiance in Jesus Christ? Is there something that prevents you from pursuing Jesus? Is it the stuff that you have? Is it certain people? Is it a status that you have? Whatever it might be, it pales in comparison to what can be found in Jesus. So I'd encourage you this morning, spend some time thinking about that. And if you are a believer, what distractions do you have? I know we're all busy. There's a lot going on. But as you come and take the cup and the wafer, return back to your seats, spend some time thinking about that. What's hindering you from complete allegiance to Jesus? And as you think about that, turn it over to him. Ask that he would change your heart as only he can do. And then once you've done that, go ahead and take the cup and the juice and celebrate together what Christ has done on the cross for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.